From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hey, Dana. Hi, Mark. So what are we talking about today? We are going to talk about bioplastics. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about a report called Bioplastics Primer Market Overview by a BNF analyst called Ilhan Savut. So when I read this yesterday, I, I feel like I understood it. You know, I, I got it, but I don't think I quite got it, right? It didn't click for me until last night. So I was home cooking dinner, listening to the news, as I always do, and kind of throwaway story caught my attention. It was really, you know, just a few lines stating that Malaysia was sending back 3,000 tons of illegally imported plastic waste to the UK, US, Australia, Japan, France, and Canada. The environment minister of Malaysia said Malaysia will no longer be a dumping ground of the world. And it seems other countries are following suit. So Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia are all sending back plastic waste to, to all these places um, and refusing to accept more. Now, what does make it into these countries often gets illegally incinerated or sits in a landfill. So only a small fraction gets recycled. So bioplastics, this seems what happened or what well could happen when Western countries are forced to reckon with not being able to sweep their plastic under the rug anymore. It's really coming from everywhere. Yeah. We've, we've got True. materials everywhere. Fair. And Fair. The, the reality is that when you throw something away, there is always an away. Yeah. So whether that away is us shipping it to a different country, whether that away is it unfortunately ending up in the ocean. So there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of recent attention on social media and in the news about the Pacific gyre. So if you've not heard of this, uh, this is a Texas-sized lump of floating plastic waste in the ocean. And uh, it's typically followed up with some sort of picture of something like a sea turtle that's wrestling mm. with a single-use plastic bag or a straw. And, you know, it's it's this very confronting image of human waste going into what we consider, you know, pristine natural spaces that are no longer pristine because, because of it. So I think we can spend a lot of time talking about waste, but hopefully today what we're going to do is really actually get much more into bioplastics and what some of the innovators are doing to create different materials, both from different sources or can be ultimately, because of how they're made, treated differently end of life. Bioplastics are just a existing small part of the market right now, but let's explore what the future could potentially hold on this and really what bioplastics are, because that's something that until I read this note, I wasn't 100% clear on and I thought I was. So if you want to read Bioplastics Primer Market Overview by Ilhan Savut, you can find it on BNEF.com or BNEF's mobile app by just searching for the title of the note or on the Bloomberg Terminal at BNEF Go. Uh, if you're not a client, shoot us an email at sales.bnef at bloomberg.net. Uh, and just a quick reminder, that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of our show. So I'm Dana Perkins. And I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Client Podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Julia Atwood, who is our head of advanced materials here at BNEF. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks for having me back, guys. 
Can you start us off today by by just telling us what bioplastics are? I mean, so we read the the note. We think we get bioplastics. I read it twice. Okay, there you go. I could still use this question. Okay, it's a complicated space, so it's totally understandable that you guys are needing to read it over. It's complicated because there is an entire world of plastics. So we're going to break it down into four types. There's the regular everyday plastics that you see all the time, and they're made from fossil fuels, and they do not biodegrade. Then you have some very, very special fossil fuel-based plastics that do biodegrade. They're called PBS and PBAT. They're a little weird. We're not going to talk about them too much. Then you have your bio-based world of plastics. Plastics are just made up of carbon and hydrogen and a bunch of other additives. So really, they can come from any source where you have those two things. And a lot of those are bio-based, like old biomass or sugarcane or corn. So within the plastics that are made from biosources, you have the ones that will biodegrade, and they are called substitutes, and these are brand new plastics. Mm -hmm. And then you have your bio-based plastics that are called drop-ins, and they are chemically identical from the standard polypropylene, polyethylene that you would get from a fossil fuel. So they're called drop-ins because you can just put them straight into your product, no different treatment required once you get the material made. Now, my understanding of bioplastics when I heard the term was they were going to be this universe of things that we interact with that are both made from organic materials and biodegrade fairly quickly. Is there a Venn diagram of these things or does everything sit in one of these two buckets that you just described? There is a Venn diagram, especially in terms of what happens at the end of its life. Because some plastics you can just put out in your compost heap and then they will disappear. And that's like the home composting space. But a lot of them, especially the ones like PLA that are used very commonly, they have to go into a special industrial composter. So you still need to send it off uh, with your city recycling so that it can go to a special facility. So do they want the people who are actually taking this and composting it or incinerating it and creating energy from it, whatever they're doing with it, do they want it because they get the byproduct at the end? Because I'm having these flashbacks to being a kid and having this, you know, soda can and taking it in in California and getting five cents back mm, and saying, yeah. thinking, suddenly I'm rich because I have a bag of soda cans. Um, are, are there people on a much bigger, more industrial <laughs> are scale? Are the girl guides coming for your plastic? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but um, are there companies that are seeing this as a, a really great opportunity for them to collect a new type of waste and do something with it at the end? Oh, that's a tough one because really bioplastics are a tiny, tiny fraction of the market. They're like 1% of the plastics market. And what we normally see for creating a new waste stream and creating the business models around that is that you need to have like 5 to 10% of what you're selling being that. So before you have like a bio-based polyethylene specified recycling stream, you need to sell a lot more of it. Most of the people who are buying these bioplastics are doing it for sustainability reasons or because there are extended producer requirements, legislations, or because there are extra taxes that they can escape by using a bio-friendly plastic. So what's the political momentum to get it to that 5%? Is it one of these things where everybody's really looking at this as a, as a new industry and governments are wanting a plastic alternative or are they kind of indifferent to it? Yeah. Or is it what we talked about in the intro? Is it is it the Philippines and Indonesia? Yeah. and Yeah. It's a combination of those things. I would say the policy is not as developed as it was for something like biofuels where you had these blending requirements. We're not seeing anything like that yet. 
partly because the environmental lobby is split between the people who want to encourage recycling and the people who want to encourage bioplastics. So Hmm. where we do see governments getting behind this, it's typically where there's a big national champion and a lot of agriculture. And the country that is sticking in my head here is really Brazil. So Hmm. Brascam makes most of the world's biopolyethylene. They're by far the dominant producer. And that's because there's just so much biomass in Brazil. So it's great for them. And then people who want to get off oil. So Japan has some legislation around it. But really the policy has focused much more on you have to have plastics with, say, 30% recycled material in it or we're going to tax you. That's what they're suggesting in the U.K., so there are a lot of ways to deal with the, the waste issue end of life. I mean, I think I was reading yesterday um, a statistic that 55% in 2015, I'm sure the number is different now, uh, of plastic waste was just discarded and not actually mm-hmm. dealt with. Now, whatever that actual number is for each individual locale, there's definitely a lot of stuff that needs to be dealt with end of life. I read, I read yesterday the stat now is only 9% gets recycled. Yeah. That's because some people sometimes (laughs) consider incinerating plastic as recycling it Uh because Mm. if it's being used for power, it is having another use, but it's not going back into anybody's supply chain. Mm. Okay. So that's the way to deal with it end of life. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Well, it depends on what you want to incentivize. (laughs) Okay, fine. If you just do not want landfills, at least you're getting something out of it. And the end of life is so tricky for bioplastics because we were talking about the methane earlier. And I mean, you guys will know methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So there are people on the other side of the lobby who say, yeah, but we're locking carbon away in plastic from a fossil fuel and it sits there in a landfill, inert, doesn't do anything, doesn't release any carbon. Whereas these biodegradable ones, at the end of their life, yeah, you took carbon out of the air, but you put it straight back up or you create this methane. And so the end of life is something that people argue about a lot around bioplastics. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the traditional plastics that we're used to dealing with and they sit in the landfill and presumably do nothing for a while unless they make their way into the ocean and then we've got a different thing on our hands. But uh, it was the Plastics Industry Association, I think you were saying, referred to the term biodegradable as being equivalent to the word yummy because it (laughs) doesn't actually – mean much of anything because it has to do with what timeline we're looking at. Now, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that definition of the word, as I think biodegradable actually does have a pretty good definition, but um, they do have a point there. So if these bioplastics make their way into your home compost or more importantly into the oceans, Mm. what happens to them? Do we need these end-of-life cycle people to really be thinking about what we're going to do with them or does it really vary? It's really not just a throw it away and we're good type thing like you would think of a banana peel Mm. because so many plastics are used to contain food and that means they're in contact with water it often means they're in contact with heat and water and heat are kind of the things that you think about when something is degrading so it's difficult for the producers because they want to make something that's easily biodegradable but they have these mechanical and temperature requirements that they have to fulfill so say pla which is the most common one of the most common biodegradable plastics. If that ends up in the ocean, it's actually pretty water resistant. It's probably going to sit there for a very long time. Mm. And by very long time, you mean 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years? Mm, Probably on the scale of years. Because in ideal conditions, 
the technical standard for being biodegradable is that 90% of the carbon contained in that material has to have been released as carbon dioxide after 180 days. So, aha, there is a definition. (laughs) (laughs) There is, but it's a very, uh, it's a pretty loose one and it doesn't specify the conditions. Okay, so I'm thinking about where I've actually seen this stuff. So we're we're talking a bit about the end of life, but what about everybody who wants to make this stuff? Mm. So I'm thinking Christmas time, actually, there was this Vestas wind turbine uh, made by Lego that my son really wanted from Santa Claus. You've raised your children well, Dana. It was was really fun (laughs) because finally what mommy does for a living was cool. Um, And and he asked for it from Santa, of all people. Uh, And one of the things they had pretty heavily advertised on the box was this bioplastic little the trees were made of bioplastics. So they're toying around with this idea of creating bioplastics. And who knows what that will end up doing to Lego's manufacturing. I, I can't even begin to guess given we've got mounds of Lego plastic in our house right now. <laughs> um, but what other companies? You'd mentioned in the note that Coca-Cola potentially has mm-hmm. skin in the game here. And I'm thinking this is an opportunity, but but for who? On the demand side, Anybody who's close to the consumer is now under a lot of pressure to make their products more sustainable. They've come under a lot of fire Mm. for plastics in the oceans, for poor labor practices in some cases, for, you know, artisanal mining in Africa. So everybody has this at the front of their mind. And bioplastics are a nice way for them to keep a material that's incredibly important to the consumer sector. Think about everything in your life that's made of plastics while making it more sustainable. So Coca-Cola was really the company that got the whole ball rolling on the bio-PET side of things. Because what the people making bioplastics desperately, desperately need is a champion. You have to have somebody raising their hand and saying, I'm going to take 50% of your capacity before they will build a plant. I think the other companies that are likely to get into it are people in the clothing sector, people making packaging, the brand owners, people like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Nike. And from clothing, you mean because of all the packaging that comes in it or actually to make the clothing itself? Because what is it? Something like 60 percent. The World Economic Forum said 60 percent of all the clothes that are manufactured um, have some sort of synthetic fiber. Mm, Yeah. There's a huge amount of synthetic fibers out there. Not a lot of them are bio-based at the moment, um, but things like shoes, they're really interesting because they have a lot of different plastics in them. Um, And, you know, it's something that people are willing to spend quite a bit of money on. I know my dad, he's a big runner. He spends a ton of money on running shoes. So it's a high-value product, and its consumer base is pretty conscious of these things. The interesting outlier for me, though, is Ford. Either of you guys drive a Ford? Not as much as I'd like. (laughs) Um, So Ford is actually using bioplastics quite a bit. They're starting to blend them into the interiors, into uh, the other plastic parts that they have in their car, you know, stuff that's a little away from the engine. So that's an industry that hasn't made as much of a move towards bioplastics. But if Ford can kind of show them the way in terms of the supply chain and the design standards, then there are quite a few plastics in cars these days and there's going to be more. Now, how about the other forms of packaging that have been getting kind of some interest recently? Well, actually for a long time. So uh, what comes to mind from my standpoint is Tetra Pak. Mm 
mm-hmm. or how with all these plastic bag bans you're seeing a lot of places, mm-hmm. uh, the alternative seems to be paper bags, which incidentally have a much higher carbon footprint. Are bioplastics, and I know it's really hard to kind of extrapolate this out given they are only 1% of this plastics market right now, but do you foresee them potentially encroaching in on the plastics market or do you see them encroaching in on these alternative things, materials, also, mm. well, biopackaging from paper or other <laughs> things, uh, if we want to give it another term? Um, where, where do you see it really going? Or is it just going to add additional capacity? Because, I mean, the world's going to go from 7 billion to potentially 10 or 12 billion people. And uh, gosh, we need, we want materials. I think the the alternatives that we have right now, some of them like paper bags, I think they're a bit of a Band-Aid measure because while there are people who can make bioplastics, there isn't actually that much active capacity. So the people who are buying them are worried about security of supply. So I think when you see a plastic bag ban, a lot of these companies, their first instinct is, oh my God, let's switch to paper because everybody knows where to get plastic, where to get paper bags. Um, but the paper isn't as good a packaging material as plastics because, you know, if your eggs break or your milk leaks, it starts to get really weak. And then all of your oranges and bananas fall out of the bottom. It's, so it also doesn't last are, as long. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Plastics yeah. last forever. Yet, <laughs> um, those single use plastic bags, they, they, they can be used a couple times. Whereas a paper bag, you get it wet it's and you're tough. toast. Yeah. And you've hit on exactly the problem is that utilization has a huge impact on the overall carbon footprint of something. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about a reusable water bottle, that has a much, much lower carbon footprint, even though you need more and higher performance materials to make the thing in the first place. If you can kill demand for a lot of other things, then that gives you a big benefit in terms of carbon. So I might actually bypass that whole question and say, I'm thinking, you know, cloth bags and getting everything delivered to your door in crates that you then put immediately into your fridge, maybe the future. Hmm. So on the performance end of things, you reference in your research that they've got kind of different performance characteristics. Could you talk about some of the benefits that bioplastics actually provide as and, and I don't know which of the two categories of bioplastics, but mm. but which of these two categories has kind of a superior value to it that a consumer or even that a manufacturer may want in the yep. market? The thing to remember is that the bio-based plastics, so like bio-PE, bio-PET, it's exactly the same. as. So we're the, not going to notice the difference, except yeah. I think I've interacted with some and they're slightly matte finish. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the only difference. Is the only <laughs> advantage there for the substitute? That's the substitutions one, right? No, this is the drop-ins. The drop-ins. Oh, sorry. Is the only advantage there that you're not using oil to make it? Yes. Okay. And for some of them, it's not even that they're totally oil-free. So BioPET, for example, is only 30% bio-based. Mm-hmm. So there's still quite a lot of oil in there. There are bio-roots, but they're not commercially mature. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the people who are making the packaging and using these materials, they see it as a benefit that they don't have to change their process at all. But on the other hand, the reason why the substitutes, so these are the new things like PLA and PHA, the reason why they can have better properties is because you're designing a brand new material. And so you can use additives or different processing methods to give you stuff that you didn't have before. So like better temperature resistance or better formability, or it can just be stronger and stiffer. Um, Or if you want a matte finish, you can have matte finish like a Christmas tree. 
<laughs> so there are plastics engineers out there saying, let's make packaging of all kinds of different things because we might just be able to make some more interesting stuff. Yeah, exactly. When you were saying just what is a bioplastic, you know, red flags went up in that it seems like there's some dark secrets here. Mm. So land use, water use, food competition. Can you comment on that at all? Let me start with the food competition thing. Sure. They've started by using foods like corn and sugar and soybeans because that's the easiest thing to make it from. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a pretty rich source of the oils that they need. But there are a ton of startups out there who are working on second, third, fourth generation feedstocks. Like potato peel waste yeah. and carrot waste and yeah. like that. All the yeah, stuff okay. you don't want to use. Right. I get a magazine that comes in a potato peel waste sack. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a children's magazine, but all the same. I'm imagining brown burlap coming through the mail slot. We do address water and land use mm -hmm. in the note. So we have a chart where we're looking at the cradle to gate carbon footprint and comparing it to petrochemicals. And we have like a line and it's basically anything below this line is better for the environment. And we take into account water and land use and carbon footprint, but it's extremely location dependent. If you were growing all of your bioplastics feedstocks in a greenhouse on the middle of a rock face in Newfoundland, then <laughs> that's not interfering with your food supply. Right. Um, or if you're using the waste stuff, like the second and third generation feedstocks, then that's a positive as well. It's better than burning it. I've heard about people locating these like in Wyoming near, or excuse me, Idaho, where all the potatoes are, yeah. or in Maine or something like that. Yeah. It makes sense. There's that to consider. We still see most bioplastics being below the line, so better than the petrochemical alternatives. Mm. But then it really depends on what happens to it at the end of its life. Okay. Now, quick moment for definitions. Mm -hmm. You said cradle to gate. I read it a couple times in the note and thought, surely this is a typo. She means cradle to grave because I've heard that <laughs> term before. Uh, but What gate are you going to? I am wrong. You Which... are going up to the factory gate. Uh -huh. Okay. So they see their... I suppose from the supplier's point of view, that's when their responsibility ends. Okay. They have made this thing in the most responsible way possible. They've used a biofeedstock. They've powered their plant using wind and solar. That's like all they can do. They hand it over to the supplier. They deliver the little plastic pellets. Yeah. Deliver okay. the pellets. And then it's like your move, guys. Okay. Um, and then it's up to the brand owner or the person making the packaging to A, make it so that it's easy to recycle or to compost, so make it thin, make it out of one material, and then B, get the consumers to treat it properly at the end. So what do you think it's going to take to give this industry a real injection, the injection that it needs to be more than 1%? What's going to get it to 5% of total materials, and where, where does that opportunity kind of come from? Yeah, it comes from a big international champion saying, Bigger than Coke? You just need several Cokes. Several Cokes, yeah, okay. Like you Coke, need an Amazon. Yeah, yeah. and you yeah. need one person per bioplastic almost. So you need someone who's going to say, I'm all bio-PE, I'm all bio-PA. Mm -hmm. um, because Coke can run its segment of the bio-PET market right now. But the only thing that's going to get it beyond there is all of these big international companies saying, oil is not interesting to us anymore. Like you're starting to see those kinds of moves with Apple around aluminum. So that's their big thing. So they want to make the iPhone out of aluminum. So they want recycled or green aluminum. 
you know, they don't use very many plastics, but they've committed to everything being recyclable or renewable. Mm -hmm. So once they get through their aluminum supply chain, companies like that are going to start looking at plastics. And they're going to say, okay, do I go recycled or do I go bioplastics? And those two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, a lot of people would say the gold standard is to have a bio-based, 100% renewable feedstock, bio-PE, say, that you then recycle at the end of its life. So then, so long as you're powering your manufacturing with clean energy, no petrochemicals involved. Mm. And low energy because recycling is typically less energy intensive. So part one was on the market opportunity, the market overview. I know there's a part two coming out, is that right? Yes, there is a part two. Uh, Part two looks into each of the different plastics in detail. So it talks about who are the major producers, what are the technical challenges, how are they made, how are their costs going to change, which is pretty important and something that we actually haven't talked about today. And then there's also going to be a couple of case studies. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. This was fun. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.